This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Today we're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi. Here's why. She took a trip to Taiwan. We're going to have a couple of guests talking about that. We are also going to talk about the spike in crime in cities across the country. How do you rein it in? What is the Department of Justice doing with one of the top officials at the Department of Justice? Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite. I wanted to focus the interview on on victims. Oftentimes we talk about crime in America and we forget, I think, there are times when we don't focus on the victims enough. And frankly, there are times when the, the Justice Department perhaps forgets victims. So we're going to talk about that in that exclusive interview with Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite. But first the Speaker of the House, in her trip to Taiwan. Carl Hulse of the New York Times, chief Washington correspondent, and a veteran of more than three decades of reporting in the Capitol. That's why he's going to join us now. Carl, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so as we have this discussion, CBS News is reporting that China fired ballistic missiles and deployed fighter jets and warships on Thursday as it began its largest ever military exercises around Taiwan, a show of force sparked by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. I suspect this is the kind of response that U.S. officials were anticipating. What do you think, Carl? Yeah, no, I think that they... They were. It's probably. It may even be less of a response than what they were anticipating. Uh, you know, there was some pretty severe uh, language and uh, saber rattling over the visit. Now, you know, you posed the question there earlier. Why? Why would she do this? And I, I found this interesting in, in Washington. People go, Why would Nancy Pelosi go aggravate the uh, Chinese government at this time? And I've said. Nancy Pelosi has been sticking her finger in the eye of the Chinese government for three decades. This is a cornerstone of her political career. So to those of us who have followed and dealt with Nancy Pelosi over the years, this is exactly what we would expect her to do. I mean, the timing is a little bit uh, off because she was actually supposed to do this earlier this year, had announced the trip and got COVID. So 
canceled it. And uh, I think in some ways that the Pelosi circle was a little surprised at the response and, you know, the reaction from the White House that, uh, you know, she's she's, going to create an international incident. Uh, I mean, to them, this was uh, sort of the norm for things that Nancy Pelosi does. And there was a leak of the trip. And I think that uh, some folks might have thought that leak was going to dissuade her from going, but the people who thought that did not know Nancy Pelosi. And once the Chinese, once the Chinese government said you can't come, well, she was certainly going to go. Nancy Pelosi does not get pushed around. She's not going to be pushed around by the Chinese government or the Biden administration. Uh, I think even some of her Republican critics can admit that she is a shrewd tough politician. She might be the toughest politician in Washington right now. I mean, she, she's just, you know, she's had power for a long time and she is willing to wield it and she's not going to be uh, put off by, you know, President Biden suggesting that maybe she shouldn't do this right now. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think when you look at Capitol Hill, uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are two heavyweights. No, you know, they have their critics on both sides, even within their own parties. But they are good at what they do. Yeah, they've been there for a long time. But they know how to work the system to their benefit. You know, Mitch was supportive of Pelosi's trip, right? Well, and Mitch McConnell has, you know, a very strong belief himself about uh, protecting democracy in Taiwan. So that was kind of one of the twists of the story was the Republicans who normally, you know, cannot stand Nancy Pelosi and attack her at at every turn were like, she's doing the right thing. And it's President Biden who needs to stand down and quit criticizing her. So strange bedfellows in this case. Well, and indeed, isn't there, there are some Democrats who, who, you know, they want President Biden to get tougher to to appear tougher on certain issues. Um, I don't know whether he uh, projected that image on this yeah, issue. I think that that was, you know, the White House, for the White House to undermine her you know, the way they were doing, I think was uh, kind of unexpected. All right, so a couple of things. And I, I this is something I said on this program before. I had a source in the intelligence community who used to say, Jeff, timing is important. Things happen at a certain time for a reason. And so, you know, playing an intelligence analyst, I'm looking at what's happening with Nancy Pelosi. You have the midterms approaching, and there's a lot of talk that she may not be speaker Uh, after the midterm election. So her time uh, and probably her career is coming to an end. Uh, Potentially, okay? You never count her out. Potentially. All right, the other thing is her husband was in court this week. Uh, DUI charge. So that was out there. And, you know, obviously with so much focus on Speaker Pelosi, you don't have as much focus. Not that there was a lot in the first place, but still there are people in the San Francisco area talking about 
you know, the, the case that her husband uh, faced in court. So that's why, you know, you're just wondering the timing. And I, I know, Carl, I keep going back to this, but there are ramifications here in terms of uh, Chinese-U.S. relations. You've had the Chinese ambassador to the United States on television uh, protesting this decision to take this trip. This, you know, already there's a strained relationship between the two governments. Does this make it worse in your opinion? Uh, it probably does make it worse, honestly, uh, at least temporarily. Uh, of course, the leadership of the of the Chinese government they've got their they've got some internal political issues of their own, and you know their their uh, strategy to fight COVID hasn't really worked there. They've got high unemployment, so they need to project their own toughness. I think that I uh, on your first point about her career, I think is really relevant. I think this. I mean, the, the, the thinking on Capitol Hill is that Nancy Pelosi will win her reelection and then uh, step aside as a leader of the Democratic Party. And uh, that there, this probably is one of her final opportunities to kind of play on the world stage to this degree. I don't think her husband's case, honestly, had anything to do with the, the timing of this. This isn't, you know, this is much, much bigger than much bigger than that. Nancy Pelosi, this is just, you know, she has clashed. So she's clashing with the Biden administration over this visit now, but she really clashed with Bill Clinton when he was in the White House and Bill Clinton and his economic advisors, they were all in on improving economic ties with China. This was, a, they saw this as a great opportunity and an opening. Uh, they were always pushing, uh, most favored nation status for China on trade. Nancy Pelosi fought them tooth and nail. It was a really uh, point of contention between uh, Clinton and, and Pelosi, uh, where she's defied him and sort of broke with the party on this. So she's, she's used to uh, big fights over China. Uh, but I, I do think that this was a moment that she thought it was important for her to visit the region. And if she was going to be in the region, she was going to you know, take some shots at China. She just believes that their uh, record on human rights is horrible and that the American governments and administrations of both parties have been willing to overlook that for economic reasons. And that just has never really sat very well with her. You have me segueing to Nancy Pelosi and her stature in U.S. political history. I mean, this trip to Taiwan, if you show these images of her getting off the plane in Taiwan and the kinds of response, the kinds of responses from China, if you, if you show the images of her in China, decades ago, standing up for democracy. Um, just, you know, from a historical perspective, good images. I mean, if, if you're her media advisor, you're like, yeah, speaker, this looks good. This looks good from, you know, in terms of history, this is where we want you positioned. So Carl, I know, you know, you're, 
you got to be a history buff yourself. Uh, I think anybody in journalism and who takes this job seriously is. Where do you think, and I'm not, I'm not writing her off in the midterms. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to say the Democrats are going to lose. I'm not, I'm not going there. While we're talking about Nancy Pelosi, I just want to talk about where you think she stands as a speaker in this country's history. It, is she up there in the top five? What do you think? I think she probably will go down in the top five. I mean, and especially as a woman who uh, rose up through politics at a very difficult time for women, you know, there's a game played by men. And she, I think she will be remembered as one of the uh, most powerful speakers in the, in the country's history. You know, a Sam Rayburn-like uh, figure. You know, there were certainly like Joe Cannon back in the day, uh, but she, I, I don't, you have to give her tremendous credit for the way that she has wielded power. I, I just don't think there's, there's any doubt about it. And you talk about the picture of her in 91 in Tiananmen Square and, you know, unfurling that banner with the two other congressmen. I mean, that was pretty darn nervy at the time. And, uh, you know, she's been a nervy person her entire career and, you know, has delivered the goods. She's had some issues and she lost her majority, but she stuck around and got it back. I think that, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, it goes down as a pivotal figure in congressional history without a doubt. Yeah, you know, people think that she, she is Northern California through and through. But she's really Baltimore. Her family is Baltimore. One of my favorite cities on earth, Carl, because, you know, Baltimore, and I've lived in Milwaukee too, but Baltimore is one of those towns where if you grew up there, you'd love it. Great, hardworking, a lot of pride. And her father, well, he was mayor, I believe, right? Wasn't he mayor of Baltimore? Yeah. She learned a lot from her uh, father and brother, who was also in politics. Yes, she, people do think of her as a San Francisco liberal, but she's really a child of Baltimore politics and, uh, you know, can be hard knuckled, but she can also be very, she, she's got a lot of techniques that she uses on people when she figures out. Uh, which approach she thinks is best. She's like an incredibly skillful politician and, uh, you know, has been extremely helpful to all the presidents that she served with this speaker uh, with Obama and uh, now Joe Biden, always close and, you know, caused trouble for the Republican presidents. And of course, you know, was a huge thorn in the side of Trump and just couldn't stomach him whatsoever. And she would talk about that too. She, she didn't hold back. She wasn't diplomatic when it came to Donald Trump. She, I mean, the picture of her from early on in the Trump administration where she's standing up in the uh, conference room in the White House with her finger uh, wagging at Donald Trump, I think is one of the images that stuck with me from that era and you know she is tough as nails and you know the chinese government is she to, to her the chinese government is despicable of course to them 
Nancy Pelosi is a, uh, you know, they've been criticizing Nancy Pelosi for years. She tried to get a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics going. Uh, they attacked her and, you know, they've, they've always attacked her. She, she's not bothered at all by their attacks. Now, she's also a you know, high-ranking U.S. official. She's not interested, I don't think, in dragging the U.S. into any hostilities. But it got to the point where, and this is where the Republicans were so supportive, and most Democrats, I think, where she just could not not go because you cannot be of the stature she is in our government and then have the Chinese say, well, you can't go visit uh, Taiwan, an ally of ours. So, I mean, once once it all started to shake out, there was no way that she was not going to be able to go. And, uh, you know, I I think there, there's going to be some lingering bitterness, but the, the Chinese government was already very bitter about Nancy Pelosi. Carl Hulse, New York Times, Chief Washington Correspondent. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anybody who lives in Washington, I understand a lot of you don't live in Washington, but I do. When I drive by the Brookings Institution, I say there are a lot of smart people in that building. Melanie Sisson, who's a fellow with the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. The headline for what she wrote is, On Taiwan and China, comma. Is the U.S. ignoring the real lesson of Ukraine? So what does that mean, Melanie? You're talking about some of the implications of this trip. And has the U.S. sort of forgotten some of the lessons of Ukraine? What did you want to convey in this article? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, very much. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I am always um, delighted when I hear people asking not just questions, um, but what is forever the most important question to be asking, which is, as you say, why? Why is this? Why do we think this thing? Why do we do this thing? Uh, to what end? And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that you found some value in the article. And your questions about it are uh, a bit complicated, so I'll try to take it one bit at a time. Um, the first thing I would say is that my intent in writing the piece was to call attention to the fact that even these big, important, acute moments like Putin's invasion of Ukraine, they come in context of time and a broader relationship, and that we can focus on the immediate activities and outcomes of these acute moments. But I, I worry that we sometimes forget uh, to contextualize them. And if we're interested in thinking about how we can compare across situations, we, we can't ignore context. And so in this case, the idea was to say, look, um, Putin's invasion is abhorrent and certainly he had very many reasons in his own mind um, for choosing to do this. We do need to acknowledge that one of those reasons is that he had for years been pressing objections and making claims about uh, Russia's national interest and the West's what he saw as um, aggressive intent and unwillingness to compromise. 
Um, and that that fact, his recognition of our immovability on areas of extreme importance to him, um, factored into his decision. Now, that's not naming and shaming or blaming or absolving. It is just observing that this is the context in which the invasion ultimately happened. And that we similarly need to pay attention to the broader context in terms of the U.S.-China relationship and the U.S.-China-Taiwan relationship. Uh, and take care uh, not to over-focus on these moments and instead retain some historical perspective uh, in service of making wise choices. Well, all right. So in your analysis, I've already asked this question of a previous guest. In your analysis, why was it important for the speaker to go to Taiwan now? So I will, uh, you seem like a person who is very interested in hearing things straight. And so I will uh, tell it to you that way. I don't think from an analytic perspective that it was important for Speaker Pelosi to go to Taiwan right now. I do believe that it was important to her. Um, and those are different um, and so, again, being very honest, I see more that I worry about in her decision to go right now um, than I do see in terms of a, of a either gain for the United States uh, in terms of the relationship uh, with China um, or a gain for Taiwan in a very practical lived experience every day kind of sense for her visit. Even some Republicans have said about the speaker's trip, we can't allow the Chinese to dictate who we speak with and meet with, who we as American leaders go to visit. So they, you know, they don't seem to be uh, taking issue with her visit at this moment. How do you respond to that? Sounds like a good idea to them, or maybe they would, you know, they haven't gotten that far, some of them, but they've said, you know, we should not allow the Chinese to dictate what we do. Well, I think that that argument to me is a bit beside the point. I don't think this is a question about who gets to tell whom what they should or should not do. What my expectation of all policymakers is, is that they have clear notions of what's in the U.S. national interest. They weigh costs, they weigh benefits, they weigh risks, and they make a determination based on what's in the public interest. Um, and so whether China is for it or against it or uh, argues vociferously to the point of seeming a bully about telling Nancy Pelosi what she can and can't do or should or shouldn't do, these things are not the core of the issue. The core of the issue is what is motivating her to visit? Is it important enough to justify any costs and risks? And if so, can you articulate that for me? Um, so, you know, those are the things that I'm paying more attention to and not so much about whether or not this is a moment where it's a, a contest between China puffing its chest and the United States puffing its chest. Uh, and it's not just China puffing its chest. What we see across the globe is some new alignment developing. 
I don't know if we talk about it enough these days. I mean, there, you know, some people have, have discussed it within the Washington Beltway. But what you see is Russia uh, and its uh, relationship with China intensifying. You see Russia reaching out to African countries. You see Russia reaching out to uh, other countries and aligning itself against the West. And to me, if you look at this trip to Taiwan, it has it has the potential to harden those relationships against the U.S. What do you think? Yeah, I think in a general sense, I agree with you that we see these shifting alignments and that that's intentional and purposeful on the part of Russia and China. And I think it's also not terribly surprising, you know, in in from their perspective, the sort of general operations of the international order, so to speak, or the, the norms and the ways in which international politics largely have been happening for the last number of decades, that mode of operation um, for them doesn't serve their interests to the extent that they would like. And this is, this is the way of things. Um, this is why every country has a foreign policy to try to get the world to be and to do and to look like more of what we perceive to be in the interests of the security and prosperity of our people. Um, I think that there are a number of ways in which U.S. policy can, as you say, harden those positions, can create um, antagonisms or at least make it more difficult for other states to um, resist, whether it be pressures or even the appeal of countries like Russia and China. And so this visit by the speaker, I think we see evidence of that discomfort, even on the part of some of our very close allies and, and regional partners. And so there's a there's questions around, could it have been handled differently and kept some of those other countries in more comfortable positions, or at least less uncomfortable positions in terms of balancing, you know, the views of China, their near neighbor, for example, um, and the United States, an important partner, um, in the midst of Speaker Pelosi's decision to go. Um, and so I think that's certainly an element when I mentioned that the risks and costs of a trip like this, thinking about how it affects certainly allies and partners, but other regional actors and even global actors is an important element of that calculation. Melanie Sisson, thanks for your time. It has been entirely my pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest is a CBS News exclusive. His name is Kenneth Polite, Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Justice Department's Criminal Division. Think about what that means. He's prosecuting federal crimes at a time when crime in this country is sparking in cities across the country. He is part of the law enforcement apparatus put in place to reverse these disturbing trends. But that's not all. He is also trying to beef up the staff at the Department of Justice that deals with victims, victims' family members. And there's a reason why he's been doing this, because it's important to him. It's important to him because his family has experienced the kind of loss 
to senseless violence that a lot of families in America are dealing with right now. Listen to segments of this interview with Kenneth Polite, Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Criminal Division from New Orleans, Louisiana. Do you think at times victims are forgotten in this talk about rise in crime across the country? Unfortunately, all too frequently. Uh, this is something that has been a critical part of my work, uh, whether I've been in private practice or in the Department of Justice. I think all too frequently, particularly in cities like New Orleans, my hometown, where violence is a constant, there is unfortunately a situation where people become desensitized to what it means for victims, not just for the people who are oftentimes losing their lives to violence, but a lot of people who are shot who survive and live with the casualties of those injuries. What was it like for you growing up in New Orleans? Well, I grew up primarily in the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, for those of you who may know a little bit about New Orleans, uh, that's one of the poor areas of the city of New Orleans. Uh, it's an area where uh, the has not never really rebuilt itself uh, following Hurricane Katrina. Uh, fair amount of violence, uh, always surrounded by a very supportive family, particularly a supportive mother who tried to shelter us from as much of that as possible and kept us focused on education. But with that said, uh, violence was not something we were able to escape entirely. Uh, I can remember growing up in housing projects in New Orleans where I would visit and uh, visit caregivers where we had one, uh, one cousin of mine who was uh, unfortunately killed very publicly, uh, shot and then burned in the courtyard of a housing project. Uh, as an adult, I, uh, I lost my half-brother to the streets of New Orleans very violently as well. Uh, and at a time when I was at a crossroads of really trying to decide what I would do with my career, I think his death in a lot of ways shaped me and led me to, to want to become a prosecutor. That, that was in 2004. He, he was shot and killed. It was an act of retaliation. Yes, uh, and, and unfortunately that is a, a common uh, part of the, the cycle of violence that we see in cities like New Orleans and communities all across this country where uh, individuals are being retaliated against for some prior uh, act and the cycle continues. And it, it requires the engagement and frankly the intervention of law enforcement to try to break that cycle, uh, but it also requires the intervention of folks who are actually in the neighborhood, who know those people, know uh, the faces, know the actors, and are trusted by individuals in the community. Oftentimes, they can be the most impactful individuals to help intervene and break that cycle. And a lot of times, those are, those are members of our uh, faith-based organizations as well. I was gonna ask you, what was the difference in your life? I mean, you, you obviously, you, you talked about growing up in the Ninth Ward, you didn't come from a lot of money, but you made it out. You made it here. What was the difference for you? Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, a loving family led by my mother. You know, my mom is somebody who, you know, frankly, all of this attention, this interview, that's the person that if you want to try to figure out uh, 
the answer to your question, probably we should be spending time with her, but she was a woman who was, uh, became pregnant with me when she was 16 years old, uh, decided to sacrifice her own education in a lot of ways, her own livelihood, very smart woman who could have accomplished a lot more, uh, but for having children at a very young age, uh, but dedicated her life to our livelihood and our education and our safety. Uh, you know, one of the things I'm mindful of is my mom giving up, you know, days and nights, particularly when we were in high school. I was involved in everything <laughs> and everything. Jeff. And it became a, a, a process where uh, it was un, not uncommon for her to be there. She wanted to keep you busy. I think that's right. I think that's right. Definitely wanted to keep me, keep us focused, wanted to keep us safe. Uh, but she could not do it alone. You know, we had a lot of angels, grandparents. Uh, I'm blessed to still have both of my grandmothers still alive with me at 86 and 90 years old. Uh, my father, uh, who was a tremendous public servant in a lot of ways, my brother and I walk in the footsteps of my father. He's, he was a 37 year veteran in the New Orleans Police Department. Uh, and I was frankly surrounded by a lot of public servants, you know, nurses and teachers and probation officers and a lot of police officers in my, in my family. Right now, across this country, crime is spiking in cities. Yeah. Uh, people are trying to figure out why. To what do you attribute that rise in crime? Well, I think there's been a lot of folks focusing on this very question for years now. Uh, I think the best answer that we can all come to is recognizing that there is not one answer. It is certainly a multifactored uh, set of events and, and, and issues uh, within our society, some that are connected to our criminal justice system, uh, many that are not. Uh, some of the health concerns, both physical and mental health concerns that we are dealing with. Uh, some of the security issues, like I said, that the criminal justice system can impact. Uh, but this is a critical time for a lot of people right now. It's an uncertain time for a lot of people, and that's manifested in a lot of ways, both economic, health-related, uh, as well as in terms of their physical safety. And so I think we've got to figure out how to not just leverage the, the, the tools of, the law, of law enforcement to try to answer those questions and recognizing that law enforcement, while it can be an important part of the answer, cannot be the entire answer. You know, a lot of times when I, I, I talk about neighborhoods and especially when I was U.S. Attorney in New Orleans, which was a, a district based in New Orleans, but covered rural, suburban, and urban areas of Southeast Louisiana, I would reflect on the fact that if you think about what the safest neighborhoods in our district look like, they had great schools, they had great engagement from churches, uh, a lot of green space, economically prosperous. They didn't necessarily have a police officer in every corner though. Right? The answer isn't necessarily law enforcement being more engaged or more, uh, more present uh, necessarily as part of that answer. I saw a survey recently listing the top 10 cities that have seen an increase in homicides between 20, I think it was 2020 and 2021. New Orleans, again, is at the top of that list. What do you think is not happening in some of these cities where they keep showing up in the same place yeah. with spikes in homicides. What's happening or what's not happening? 
I can certainly speak from my own experience <laughs> from that city in particular, uh, but I suspect that a lot of the, 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 the characters that you see at the tops of those lists quite frequently, the Baltimores, the St. Louises, right, um, are communities that are poverty, high rates of poverty, high pockets of, deep pockets of poverty in certain parts of the city. You see quite frequently it is an economically challenged set of communities. And then third, I would highlight uh, these are cities where young people, young and old, but particularly I focus on young people, have experienced high levels of trauma. And I, and I define trauma very broadly uh, to include uh, issues of food security, uh, issues of homelessness, uh, issues of early uh, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, early uh, rate, high rates of, uh, of early morbidity, uh, high rates of incarceration of parents. One thing that people don't realize, I think, is that cycle and what it means. If you take somebody off the streets, and sometimes, you know, it's some trumped up charge. I saw that in Baltimore once, where they took this guy off the street, they locked him up for a few months before they finally cleared him. And I would tell people that, all right, look at that guy, for example. Look at what happens to his family. If he's the breadwinner, he's taken off the streets, got, he loses his job, what are they going to do? And that's how this cycle starts and repeats. And I don't think people realize the ramifications. Holding people accountable by making sure that they have the specific deterrence of being taken out of a community for a period of time is important and oftentimes part of the answer in, in terms of preserving public safety. But what should be part of that process is from day one, reentry should start. From the moment that person gets locked away, we should start engaging with that person in their life, in their family, to ensure that when they are prepared to walk outside the, those prison doors, they are a better person, they're better, better educated, they're better trained, and that they're ready and committed to living a law-abiding life outside of prison, never to return. That has to be part of, that's part of the answer from the criminal justice system, is being committed to reentry from day one of incarceration. That is Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite in my exclusive interview with him at the Department of Justice. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Don't forget... For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.